Good evening. I, um, I believe in starting on time, and I promised we would start on time and finish no later than 8.30, and we'll keep that, we'll keep that promise again tonight. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do, so I hope you'll forgive me and maybe have a little patience. Um, this is a big church, and it's kind of fun. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, but I, I'm, working, I'm working really hard to learn everybody's name, so if you would tell me your name on the count of three. One, two, three. Some of you didn't say it. One, two, three. All right, good. No promises that I'll have those memorized tonight, but I'll, I'll, I'll do, the, do the best I can. Um, let me remind you, we're gonna, I'm going to throw a couple of quotes up there today from uh, uh, Rob Bell, one from Rob Bell and one from Adam Hamilton. In fact, don't put it up yet, Stuart, but we'll start with Adam in a, in a, in a couple of moments. Um, how many of you have either, either Rob Bell's book or Adam Hamilton's or both? A bunch of you do. Great. Thank you for buying those. Um, I, they're supplemental reading. I'm not following their order. Um, if I were going to write my own book, I wouldn't follow the way either one of them did that. Uh, the difference between what they've done and what I've done is they've actually written a book. Um, so there's, there's, they got that on me. I have a little book of sermons that uh, I think we're going to sell um, at, at, uh, in December because they're, they're, they're sermons for Advent, Christmas, and, and Epiphany. Um, they were written in 1998, and so, uh, you know, uh, forgive me in advance if, in case you buy the book. Um, but anyway, what, what I want you to know is that if you haven't bought those, uh, take some time to pick them up because I think they're both very different in style, very different in the way they orient their thinking, but really excellent, um, um, good, scholarly-based, yet popularly written uh, material. Does that make sense? You know, they're not, they're, they're not written for, uh, you know, Jim Long's here tonight. They're not written for seminary folks. They're written for regular folks. Um, not like Jim and me, but y'all um, is what, a, what I'm saying. Geez, Jim, that's twice I've insulted you in three weeks. Um, 
No, certainly didn't mean to. Anyway, so um, uh, just a little commercial for both those books. I find them they're very, very uh, exceptional. We're trying to figure out, by the way, um, how we can Skype Adam in and put him up on the big screen live uh, at the end of one of our um, uh, Bible studies, maybe in the next couple weeks. I had him lined up last week. Um, and he sent me a note on Monday saying that he had, he was, had 1,800 pastors coming in from around the country uh, to their leadership workshop at Church of the Resurrection. And then he had something else going on on that weekend. Um, on Sunday night, they did a, a, a call for unity between um, the, the pastor of one of the largest black churches in Kansas City and uh, my friend Emmanuel Cleaver and then my friend um, Art Nemetov, who's a Jewish rabbi, and Adam. The three of them hosted, sounds like kind of a joke, doesn't it? Uh, uh, a white preacher, a black preacher, and a Jewish rabbi all went to a bar together. Um, I don't know what the punchline is. Anyway, he had a whole bunch of things going on and he kind of begged out of, of Skyping in at the, at the last minute and so we didn't. I was going to send an email out and let everybody know that he was going to be joining us that night, just not tell you how. Um, and then, then we put him up on the screen and we were going to do some question and answer kind of stuff. So just know that's coming and if you want to read through his book, um, I'm still going to try to work, out that, with, work that out with Adam uh, to have him come here uh, live with us. Um, <clears throat> We're going, to do this on, we're going to do this on Sunday. We talked through it a little bit um, in staff meeting today. And knowing that not all of you will necessarily be here on Sunday and knowing that it's still fresh in our minds, I, I wonder if we could take a moment um, to, to uh, be quiet in prayer for the victims and their families of, of um, the shooting in Las, in Las Vegas. Um, uh, I'll confess to you, I confess this to the staff today, I'm dumbfounded and not sure what to do on Sunday, um, both in the overall worship context and uh, in, the, in the moment we call the sermon. Um, so uh, later on this week, if you'd say just a five-second prayer for your pastor, uh, that God's Spirit would, would help in, in that preparation, um, I would appreciate that, that deeply. But tonight, um, let's focus completely on the families and the victims. There's going to be some stuff come up. Um, this is one of the beauties of Bible study. Uh, these texts continue to speak in amazing ways. There are going to be some things that might spark some thoughts in your minds. Maybe not. Maybe you'll disagree, and that's okay, too. That's part of what it is. But in this moment, um, would you join me for just a bit of quiet prayer, and then I'll, I'll give a brief prayer at the end. Gracious God, almost as a nation, we feel the words of Job coming back to haunt us. We almost want to shake our fist at the sky and ask why. We wonder about the presence and the power of evil in our world, and it can overwhelm. More than that, though, we're aware that there are parents grieving. Husbands and wives have lost the loves of their life. Children will never see their parents. And so God, in some way, through the power of your spirit, be present to those who have lost so much. 
And we trust that somehow, as painful as it is to lose those whose lives were murdered, that you are welcoming them, comforting them, giving them even space to cry, even though they may be in heaven itself. Bless us, God, as we continue as a nation, as a people, to be aware of your presence among us, that we can continue to be a comfort and a source of, a source of help in a deep time of trouble. In Christ's name, amen. All right, um, Stuart, if you'd put that Adam Hamilton quote up there. This is from his book, Making Sense of the Bible, page 61. The prophets were not primarily focused on foretelling, but on forthtelling. They were speaking powerfully on behalf of God to the people of their time, offering words of comfort and more often words of challenge and critique. I think I said something like that, not as eloquent as Adam, when we opened up our, our, first, um, pod, our first Bible study. And then I think I might have hinted at that again last week as we were closing up and getting ready for, uh, to come, for, uh, come back for tonight. I, I think Adam is spot on here. Rarely are the prophets talking about something that will happen in the future. Most of the time, if they're talking about the future, they're talking about maybe in the next 10 years, maybe someday in the next 50 years, maybe, maybe within the next century we'll be able to reach this goal. In fact, we'll look at a couple of those, uh, one of them from Isaiah in just, just a little bit where he's, he's, he's not really prophesying or predicting as much as he is hoping and dreaming and wondering if this possibility, this new possibility for God's people will ever come true. What they primarily are, are almost, and this is the way to say it, are political pundits. Anybody read the, the New York Times? Raise your hand. Or maybe you're too embarrassed. Um, I, I read the New York Times every day. Uh, anybody read the Wall Street Journal? Raise your hand. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I read the opinion pages on both of those, those papers. Oftentimes, they disagree with each other, as you can imagine. Um, but both of those papers, fine journalistic, um, uh, uh, we can't say papers anymore, websites, I guess. Um, there, there, there's some brilliant journalism done, thoughtful, careful, thorough. I, I don't always agree with, with the, the, the um, pundits, with the opinion uh, page writers, but I'm always reading them because even the ones I don't disagree with, um, and I think both of them have very, very highly intelligent writers, um, that's why I'm reading them because I want smart people to help me uh, be informed. Sometimes I, I read early, early, early in the morning. Sometimes I wake up Julie and the dogs and I go, that's just crazy, <laughs> you know, and then the dog barks and Julie's wondering what's going on. Um, but, but always, 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 I want to encounter the, um, uh, the writers of the day to force me to think. I mean, one of my favorites is David Brooks. He's a very conservative uh, writer who writes for the New York Times, which is an interesting kind of, a, kind of a mix. And a lot of times, Brooks pushes some buttons in me and makes me feel like, I don't know what you're talking about here, David. Other times, he writes, and I go, wow, that's a great point. I had not considered that angle or that perspective, and I'm really grateful for you doing that. Same thing with a couple of the, the folks over in the Wall Street Journal. Don't always agree, um, oftentimes do, but it forces me to think uh, outside of the little box that I've created for myself how everyone ought to, ought to think. That's what these biblical writers are doing. They're examining the politics of their day through a spiritual slash theological um, uh, lens. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Alzheimer's hasn't kicked in yet, but it may, it may be. Um, through, a, through, a, through a lens that allows them to then see the political issue from the understanding of how, of how their understanding, what their understanding is of how God wants them to approach things. 
For example, in Isaiah's day, there was a king who was named Ahaz. Ahaz loved power. Ahaz loved wealth. Ahaz loved being honored and and pampered and welcomed in foreign kings' courts. And Isaiah had some issues with Ahaz. Not right away, but after a while. That's the sort of stuff that the prophets are writing against. Um, later on, we're going, to look at Jer- we're going to look at Jeremiah, and we're going to pay attention to a couple of things that Jeremiah said, but we won't get into some specifics. But one of the things that early in Jeremiah's career, too, is the same issue of we, we, we ran for power, we ran for military might, we wanted wealth, we wanted strength, we sold out who we really are. And in Jeremiah's view, in Isaiah's view, anytime the people of God in Israel it splits into two kingdoms, and it's, it's Israel in the north and Judah in the south, whether in the north and Israel or in Judah. And by the way, there's a whole lot of historical argument about whether or not that split ever occurred. That was something that was made up later, but that's, that's for Bible nerds. Jim, you and I can talk about that tomorrow. Um, that's for Bible nerds to, to really get into. Always, 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 they're looking at their, at their monarchy, at their politics through the theological lens that they believe is the way God wants them to see, to see things. Uh, um, it's important to keep that in mind because all the time, I hear this all the time, don't bring politics to church, don't bring politics to church, don't bring politics to church. First of all, are there politics in church? And I mean locally, within the congregation. Yeah, yeah. have you been to a church that didn't have any political issues within the congregation? Raise, raise your hand if you have, because I want to go to that church. Uh, um, yeah, of course not. That's just sort of a normal thing. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. The, the health of the congregation determines the, the health of the political um, issues that they have to deal with. Uh, a, a spiritually unhealthy or an emotionally or, or um, uh, um, systematically unhealthy church has a lot of problems with politics. And people say, oh, see, our politics are messing us up. No, no, no. It's not the politics. It's the health of the church. Politics are part of what we, who we are and what we are. Oftentimes people will say to me, don't bring politics to the pulpit. Oftentimes what they really mean is, don't say something political in the pulpit that I disagree with. (laughs) Because just about every pulpit in America, right or left and in between, has politics that's in it. And in fact, I I tried to make this clear way back at the beginning. The greatest political slash sermon given in the history of the Jewish and Christian faith is four words. Spoken by Moses to the most powerful politician in the world at the time. Let my people go. And when the, when the American slaves started to hear the stories of the Bible and they heard the story of Exodus, what story did they latch onto? The story of Exodus and the freedom for the slavery, for the slaves. Slavery was to be ended. Moses was, was arguing for the end of slavery, the slavery of the Hebrew people. That's a political action. So I, I just want to make sure that you understand what these guys are doing and what Adam is describing here is exactly that. Often, that sometimes words of comfort, and we're going to look at some words of comfort tonight, but more often, words of challenge and critique. Challenge and critique. All right. Um, oh, one more, one more thing. It's not, it wasn't on your verse tonight. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 20 um, was probably written more or less at the time uh, of Jeremiah, maybe a little bit after uh, Jeremiah, maybe like the 500s. Psalm 20, um, verse 7, I think. Yeah, 7 says, um, Some of my people trusted in chariots and spears, but blessed are those who trust in our ways. 
my ways, God's ways. <clears throat> Those who trust in chariots and spears will not survive. That's my, that's my translation, my rough paraphrase of it. Do you hear, the, do you hear what he's saying? In, in among the chosen people, the people we call the people of Hebrew, of, of Israel, the Hebrews, putting all of your trust in military might is not the way God wants you to go. Now, we can argue about that. Does that work? Is that practical? Does it work anymore today? Should we not do that or not do that? Sure, that's a conversation to have. But the biblical message from beginning to end tends to arc that way. Now, there's some battles and some bloody stuff and some wild things and, you know, there are times when the people need to be protected and all of that. But if you go from Genesis to Revelation, what you find is that the arc of the message it goes towards shalom. Remember we talked about shalom. Shalom is peace. Shalom is wholeness. Shalom is a roof over everybody's head and, and a table with food enough for everyone to eat. It's not just the absence of war, but it's actually the presence of, of, of God, of God's people uh, united together with enough I'm going to preach a sermon on a couple of weeks called um, The Gift of Enough. I'm going to play a little bit more with that, with that idea. That's really what, what Shalom is about. Okay, so um, let's go to Isaiah 1. Uh, hopefully you read this earlier. Uh, um, I'm just taking one verse, verse 11 out of Isaiah 1. There's lots of, lots of wild stuff in there, but just to focus on what it's getting at here. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, I know that sounds kind of wild and crazy. Go to the next slide, which is going to be from Hosea 6. Stuart, if you would, please. Um, <clears throat> Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by, their, by the prophets. I've killed them by the words of my mouth. For, um, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now you can go back to the Isaiah one. I, I wanted you to see those real quickly together because what both of the prophets are saying on behalf of God is this. You know, all that stuff about bulls and sacrifices and everything. What, what's he talking about? That's the way they worship. The people are basically saying, oh, we've messed up. We need to go back to church. And, and let's go back to church and, wow, since we've gotten in so much trouble because we're falling away from the way God wants us to live, let's work really hard on the, on the order of service. And let's be sure that we have a great anthem and a really good sermon and everyone leaves feeling great and happy and peppy and full of joy. And God basically says, you're missing the point. I don't care about which hymns you sing or the anthem or the sermon or, or whether the ushers stand over here or over there, this place. That's not the point. Turn your lives around and live the way you've been taught to live and then come back to worship. That, that people constantly made this mistake of thinking that if I can just fix the outward appearance, then that takes care of the inner. You ever know anybody like that? I'm going to go home and look in the mirror and see one of those persons, by the way. Don't we do that a lot? Don't we think, okay, well, I just got to, if we can just get all this stuff all lined up and get everything all pretty, but what, what God really wants is a change of the heart. We're going to look at Jeremiah 31, not yet, but we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 a little bit and what God says about our hearts and how God wants to, to um, uh, open our hearts to, to God's law and to, God, to God's ways. But I, I threw that Hosea quote up there for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's from Hosea 6, and I wrote a whole chapter of my dissertation at Claremont on, on Hosea 6. And so if you've got a couple more hours, I could tell you uh, uh, a whole lot about, about that text. 
But one of the reasons I, I put it up there is because when people um, oftentimes read through the Bible, they, they misunderstood the verses that were earlier in that, in the, in that, before that quote in the first part of chapter 6 of Hosea because they say all that stuff. We'll just go back to the Lord. We'll go back to the temple. We'll sing the songs. We'll sacrifice the bulls and the, and the goats and whatever else it is, and everything will be great. And that's used sometimes in the lectionary, and that's the readings to the Bible, and used in worship by the church to say, see, worship's a good thing. We should all come to church. And I was sitting in a church on, on vacation once, and the preacher read that from Hosea, and I just wanted to stand up and go, no, no. Um, again, Julie was holding me down and saying, just be quiet and put, put some money in the offering and shut up. Um, I wanted to write a note on a $20 bill and say, did you know? <clears throat> Do you see the point? The prophets ultimately aren't that worried about the order of worship or the style of worship or whether we worship this way or that way or someplace or the other. What they're worried about is how we live our lives and, and the, way, the way we put our trust in what matters, not in something else. Okay. Um, oh, uh, here, here's, this is a good quote from Rob Bell. Put the Rob Bell quote up. He said it shorter and much better than me. It's possible to resist the very growth and change and expanding consciousness that God desires for you by appealing to your religious convictions. That's, boy, I, that's underlined and starred in my copy of, of, of Rob's book. And that's, that's basically what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos, wait till we see Amos tonight, they're really trying to hammer home. It's not about being religious. It's about living a life that's based on a desire for the shalom of God, for the love of God, the grace of God. And, and what we do is we add a structure in order to help us do that. And after a while, we forget about the structure. We forget about why, and we start to focus on the structure when what really matters is the why are we doing this part? It's not the structure. Did, did Robert Capon ever come here and speak? Do you remember, remember Robert Capon? He was a good, good friend of Dick Wings. He was a friend of mine. Um, I got to be on a couple of retreats with him. I think he told the story. If, he, if it wasn't original to him, he was the one I heard it from, about, about, this, about this group that, would, that absolutely loved piano music. And so they went out and they formed the, the Piano Music Lovers. And they bought the most expensive Steinway they could possibly afford. And they brought in this brilliant pianist who would play for them. And then they would discuss the, oh, the different moods that he could set, the way he played, and different music, and the, how is this affecting my life, and what's it doing, et cetera. And then the, and then the, then the pianist died, and they really couldn't. They said, you know, we're never going to find anybody as good as, as, as him. And so, you know, let's just, let's just gather, and we'll get together, and we'll talk about the piano. And 50 years later, there's no one left and the piano's covered in dust because they forgot that the point was to pay attention to the music. They venerated the piano. They venerated their memory, and they forgot why it was they were gathering in the first place. It's a marvelous parable for the church. Sometimes we venerate a structure or a building or, or a way of doing ministry that was in the past that no longer works, and we forget what it really is. I mean, I, 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 in a sermon, not a sermon, but at the communion table um, about oh, I don't know, four or five years ago, I'd written my prayer out at home, and then I emailed it to myself, and I got to my office, and I realized I left uh, on a Sunday morning, and I realized I left my um, uh, laptop at home, and, but I could get my email on my phone, so I called, up the, I called up the prayer, and I just carried my phone into the worship service and read the prayer. And I got emails and notes um, about how inappropriate it was to read a, read a, a prayer off of a phone. Now, why, why is that? Is it inappropriate to read off my notebook? 
Isaiah didn't have a notebook. <laughs> Jesus didn't have a notepad. You know, um, we, get, we get so caught up in the ways things are supposed to be, we forget about what the point is. All right, I think I've made that point uh, more, more than clear. Let's move on now and die, back into Isaiah. Isaiah 11, um, 3b through 5. Uh, um, uh, as I said, I, Isaiah... Isaiah is a, a prophet. That means he's somebody who's challenging the status quo, who's challenging why it is they live the way they do. And then he has this dream, vision. He doesn't call it that, but it's kind of like that. He, he says, you know, someday, someday. And so he starts to wonder about a leader, a righteous leader, a leader who will judge not based on who's got the most money or the most chariots or the most uh, land, but someone who will judge based on our hearts, judge the people based on the way they live their lives. And he, said, he starts to say, this leader, this, this servant, this servant king will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Stop there for a second. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, all of whom we're going to look at tonight over and over and over and over and over again. What is, one of the, what is the singular thread that connects them all? Their absolute concern for the poor. I'm going to say a lot more about that when we get to Amos uh, later on tonight, but their absolute concern for the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the, the belt around, his, around his, uh, his loins. And let me give you a little bit more from Isaiah to, to really make this point as clear as, clear as I can. And then, <clears throat> verse 6. You have your Bibles open if you do? Skip to verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. That's a, that's a, a snake. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. In this vision, this dream, enemies will be friends. Even enemies within creation will be friends. So much so that even a child could be their king. Now you're starting to get the connection being made by Christians that when the Christians looked at who Jesus was and how Jesus taught, they then saw an image of Jesus, especially in Isaiah. Especially later on, we start to write about the suffering servant and the servant who's, who gives his, his life for the, for the kingdom and, and all of that that comes later in, in Isaiah. They read back into it. Uh, let me be clear. Isaiah wasn't predicting Jesus' coming. But when Christians read back into the story, they said, ah, the one that Isaiah dreamed of coming, that's who we finally see in Jesus. Now, by the way, your Jewish friends will go, mm, that's nice, but no. <laughs> I mean, you need to be clear about that. My good buddy Art Nemetov would say, good, good Glenn, but no, that's not the way we see it. They, 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 they would say that that one hasn't come yet or that a leader hasn't arisen yet who really truly embodies all of that. And that's a, that's a place where we can have a conversation with our, our Jewish friends. And the place where we can really stand with them together is to agree, this is a darn good idea. This is a wonderful, marvelous dream. One that, as recent events illustrate and events around the world continue to illustrate, is one we need um, even, even more so in our, our world today. Okay, go on to um, Isaiah 40. Um, uh, should be the next slide. Right. Um, most scholars think
think that there are at least two authors of the book of Isaiah. Some scholars think there are three. For a long time, I thought there were three. Um, but I've kind of gone back into the two scholars camp. Um, and, and, and I won't get into the argument about why, why that is. Just let me tell you why I think there's, there's two primarily. Um, Isaiah 1 through 39 is all about you got to start living the right way. You got to take care of the poor. You got to take care of the meek. You got to take care of the widow, the, the stranger, and the alien needs to be welcomed into your land. All that stuff. 39 chapters. You're selling your souls, your souls for, 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 for battleships and tanks when what, the way God wants you to live is to give your hearts and minds away and feed the hungry and, and do all of that. And then in all, and, and if you don't, and the reason why you're about to be cap, captured and dragged off into, into ba, unto Babylon or it's a foreign country somewhere else is because you're not living the right way. That's, that's also, I meant to say that earlier, that's also part of what they do. Isaiah says, we keep living like this, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they're just going to take us over. If we keep selling our souls out to them, they're just going to take us over. By 39, it's happened. And when 40 is written, and the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's probably 150 to 200 years later. And part, there's a couple of ways you can tell this. Um, if, if, um, if, if, we took a, if we took a sermon, I'm trying to think, we took a sermon by um, uh, Roy Burkhart, preached in 1955, former pastor of the church here at First Community. And we took a sermon um, by uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was around when, 1700s, right? So that would have been 200 years before. And you didn't know which was which. And you just laid them down side by side. Would you, would you notice a difference in style and tone and vocabulary and a host of other things? There might even be some references from Edwards that you would say, what the heck is that about? And you would almost have to have an annotated version to help explain certain things. Same thing happens when biblical scholars read, read the uh, biblical texts. They can tell by the change in tone and style and vocabulary especially that there's probably someone else who's writing this particular piece here. A lot of people think that what happened was one of uh, somebody, and it was, would have, we, scholars call it the Isaianic school. In other words, um, uh, students of Isaiah, who 150 years later are still studying his writing, sat down and began to write in chapter 40 uh, a word of comfort. So here's, here's the shift also. The shift in tone is, you better watch out or you're gonna be taken off into, ca into captivity. They're taken off into captivity. Life is terrible. They're sitting by the waters of Babylon, weeping. Remember, we looked at that psalm last week. And now this new school of Isaiah writers trying to write like their teacher from 150 years or 200 years before are writing words of comfort. And that this, this Isaiah 40 is one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible. Those who wait for the Lord. See, see where they are? Remember, they're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They're far, far away from home. Those who wait for the Lord, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a beautiful text. You want to go home. You say, those who wait, someday you're going to fly like an eagle. Someday you're going to run and not be tired. Someday you're going to walk and not faint. Um, I remember my church in, 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 in Atlanta pointed this out to me many years ago. Notice the order of that, of that text, too. Fly, run, walk. She said to me, no biblical training whatsoever other than Sunday school and going to church all her life. Do you think this is an older person reflecting? 
You know, when you're young, you can go. What is it Julie says to me? My, 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 body's, my mind is writing checks that my body can't cash. Um, you know, when you're young, you can do anything. Run fast, play hard, play all day, run around, do all the stuff. Stay up late and study, get up early and go to school and, and, and do five. I, I stayed up and watched a football game on a Saturday night a couple of Sundays ago. Got up at 5.30, until like 1.30 in the morning. My alarm went off at 5.30, I came. Everything went great at Sunday. Took me two days to recover though. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. It's, it's just, it's a beautiful pastoral text. Yeah, okay, if you're young, yeah, get your, get your wings like eagle and just fly. And maybe you're, you're not quite as young as you used to be. All right, you're gonna run, you'll be fine. And, then, and if you need to, just keep walking. You're not going to grow faint. It's, it's just a beautiful uh, pastoral bit of hope. Um, earlier in the text, uh, Isaiah, this Isaiah writes and says, um, Have you not seen? Have you not heard? It's his way of saying, remember who we are. God will forgive us. God will redeem us. God will, God will lead us out someday. Fly, run, walk, crawl. Do whatever you've got to but keep moving forward. It, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful text. So this is a part of where, um, as Adam said in his opening quote, that we see, we see the, uh, the word of comfort being spoken then to the people. All right, now go to Jeremiah 31, and let me give you a little note about this first. Uh, um, Jeremiah uh, is actually, in the, in the chronology of the prophets that we're looking at tonight, not an 8th century prophet. He's from more like the 7th century, maybe bleeding on over into the 6th century B.C. So 600-something to 500-something is more or less Jeremiah's writing. And, and Jeremiah is doing the same kind of thing. He's reflecting on all the stuff that had gone on. Now, there's a couple of different um, attacks that happened in Jerusalem. One that happens during Isaiah's time in the, early se- uh, in the late 700s, like 715, 710, 75, right in there. And then about 140 years later, 587 B.C., the temple is destroyed, and they're finally wiped out completely. That's what Jeremiah, that's when Jeremiah is writing. Jeremiah is looking at what's going on. He's looking at all the terrible things that are happening again. And he's saying, we're, we're just, we're doomed. It's about to all happen. And it does. And then his tone shifts too. His tone shifts towards forgiveness. <clears throat> I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord. Stop there. He's reflecting back with that, that teach each other, know the Lord. That's a reflection back on Every time they get in trouble, they think, we just got to fix the Sunday school curriculum. If we could get a better Sunday school curriculum, or we get a better order of worship again. And so now God is saying, finally, I'm just not going to, I'm going to ignore all that. And then what's God going to do? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. I will put my law within their heart. The, the Hebrew word is much better than put. It's literally the word... Um, uh, that, uh, you know how they used to have soft stones and they'd use a stylus to write in the stone? And that's the way they would, they would um, send messages. Once the stone then hardened, they could send the stone off, off to another kingdom. Um, the word for doing that is actually cut. You would cut into the stone. The word here is cut, like our, like our hearts are a tablet that God's going to cut into and cut God's love into our hearts because God's just tired of waiting on us, catching up and figuring it out. God's going to put it in there. It's a beautiful, amazing, powerful text. It was the last, uh, it was the text I used for my final sermon in Kansas City. And it was my way of kind of saying, you already got God's love, now go out and live that way. And, and, and it was an okay sermon. It was about that long too, I think. Um, <clears throat> a couple of stories about this though. 
Uh, I was invited in 2001 to give a paper at the International Society of Biblical Literature meeting in Rome, Italy, um, July of 2001. Um, and I chose this text. I wrote up an abstract. This is, this is typing I'm writing. I wrote up an abstract on, on what I wanted to do with this paper, and it was accepted, uh, which was good news, bad news. Good news was it was accepted. Bad news was it was accepted, which meant I got, Julie and I got to go to Rome and, and present a paper on this very text. Well, again, one of my favorite texts in, in, in the Bible. And what you do in that kind of sitting is it's, it's like this. You're in, a, you're in a conference room. Scholars from all the world are sitting there. You give your paper, and then they get to ask questions. Um, which was probably, up to that point in my life, the most frightening thing I'd ever done, ever. Um, and, and here's what I did, though. I took the text, and I used it as a model for pastoral care in the congregation. That when we learn to forgive each other the way God forgives us, when we learn to recognize that each one of us carries within our hearts the love of God already, we can begin to see each other, even if we disagree or dislike each other, we can begin to see each other in a, in a more open and accepting, uh, kind of generous, generosity of spirit way. So I, I, I gave that paper, and there was a man in there um, from a, one of the historically, uh, uh, how do you say it, historically black colleges, black historical colleges, you know what I'm talking about? Somewhere in, in Louisiana, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. He was one of the first persons to ask me a question. He said, this is nice for, uh, what, he, said, he said, first tell me about your congregation. I said, a nice, primarily upper middle class to affluent, um, very well educated. Uh, Two-thirds of the congregation has a, a, um, a college degree. Many have graduate degrees. Um, northern edge of Atlanta, um, <clears throat> Sandy Springs, nice area, area there. And he said, this is nice for rich white people. What about the rest of the world? And it was really a challenge. And I, I, I gave a stumbling, bumbling answer because I was absolutely not prepared for it. Um, afterwards, he came up to me and he shook my hand and, and he said, I, I was sorry to do that to you, but I wanted you to see that sometimes we look at the Bible only through our own particular lens and we miss the other 80% of the world that might have a different view of it, um, might have a different perspective of it. Then we had, a, we, had a, we had a pleasant conversation after that. Now, my shirt was soaked in sweat completely and, and, and I couldn't wait to get to lunch and just, you know, get, get it, just... Get through, get through the day, but it was really helpful experience for me to see that there's a variety of ways to look at the Bible, and our context affects the way we see it. If you're a poor black person living in, in Chicago, the way you read the Bible is going to be different from the way somebody in my neighborhood who happens to be uh, a relatively well-educated white person. It just is. What we need to have is a conversation between us folks. And I'm going to be talking more about that later on in the life of our church, um, by the way. Secondly, in that, in that experience, the person who moderated my, my paper, um, the, my session, was a, a wonderful a nun, uh, a, a, a Greek Orthodox nun, I didn't know there was such a thing until I met her, named Sister Teresa from, from Russia. Uh, Russian Orthodox nun, um, just a brilliant lady. She's about this tall, weighed 87 pounds, an extraordinary, a couple of PhDs, extraordinarily bright and all. And, and I just, I, I remember at the closing party, Julie and I, it was a champagne party and a beautiful thing on the veranda. Um, it was at the Bible College of the Vatican, by the way. They know how to throw parties. And, and I went over to Sister Therese and I thanked her for the way she moderated my paper and how fair she was in the question and answer period and so forth. And, and then I said, isn't this amazing just being out here? I mean, Julie and I have had such a great time. Champagne, it's Rome. You know, we've been to all these, uh, I've been to all these uh, sessions and learned all this stuff and we've shopped a little bit and done some sightseeing. This is so awesome and, and I just can't believe how great it is to be here. And she said, well, um, I've saved for 10 years so I could buy a train ticket 
to come to this event because they posted it way out in advance when the, each session is going to be. And I, and I, I've, I've, I wouldn't know about the, the restaurants. I'm staying at a, at a um, local convent with some of my sisters, and it's been a beautiful experience. So what restaurants have you enjoyed, uh, Mr. Wiles? <laughs> I needed a little bit of forgiveness in that moment because my own arrogance was really on display. And, needed, and she wasn't trying to chop me down at all. Not at all. But boy, I, I, I felt like my heart was being cut into. All right, let's go on to Hosea 11. <clears throat> Hosea is a prophet who for several chapters basically has one sermon. It's doom and gloom. Y'all are a bunch of sinners. You're all going to die. Amen, let's go to Coffee Fellowship. I mean, that's basically what his preaching was. He was, he was CEO of Doom and Gloom Ministries. It was, you're just a bunch of sinners. You're, God's not going to forgive you for anything, for nothing. But something interesting happens in his life. I think I brought this up in a sermon a few, few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now. Hosea falls in love with a woman who's a prostitute. Now, in Hosea's day, in the 8th century, there were, there were what... Part of the, I, this is my opinion, by the way, coming forward. There's not a, absolute proof of this, but I think, it's, I think this is who Hosea's wife was. Her name was Gomer. Uh, she would have been a sacred prostitute. And in, in, in the, the non-Israelite religions, um, they were, they were, they were um, set up where if you wanted to make sure that your crops were strong, you'd go to the sacred prostitute, pay the temple, have sex with the sacred, this is a man's religion, you can tell, have sex with the prostitute. That was supposed to be a lot funnier. Have sex with the prostitute and then go back and, and hopefully uh, uh, your, your, your um, crops would be strong and you'd have lots of stuff to sell and, and wealthy for another year and all that. And it, was, it was called, it was called um, um, fertility cult religions. Have you ever heard of Baal? Um, ever heard of Ashtar? Um, these are two of the fertility uh, um, um, uh, religion gods. Baal was oftentimes uh, depicted as a pole. Somebody got it. <laughs> oftentimes they had large uh, round rocks that were used as their, as their um, idol. Do you, do you get that one too? Um, I, I first learned about this. I, we didn't learn this stuff in Sunday school. Um, I was in first year class, uh, first year uh, semester, uh, first semester of, of, of introduction to the Old Testament, in my very first semester in seminary, and Dr. Owens is talking about Asherah poles and, 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 and all these different things and, and the, the way that Baal was represented sometimes and, and, and he used the word penis and then he used the word breasts and, you know, I'm just down there taking notes like crazy. And all of a sudden, he, Dr. Owens, you just have to meet this, he's the sweetest, quietest, mildest, gentlest person you've ever met. Um, extremely bright, PhD from Johns Hopkins and, and all, all the scholarly stuff that you have to do. And then all of a sudden he looks up from his, his little, you know, his little, little uh, reading glasses and he looks out over his notes and he says, I don't mean to be going on and on and on about this stuff. And smart mouth Glenn in the back row goes, are you kidding? This is your best lecture yet. <laughs> <laughs> he turned beat, beat red. I mean, it was so cute. It, it was so cute. Um, but, but again, look at, look at the way, look at the, look at the, the, what Hosea is dealing with is this is the culture he's in. 
they're basically worshiping sex. Sex is not a bad thing. We've talked about that already in this class. It's a beautiful thing, et cetera, all of that. But they're basically worshiping sex. They're denigrating it down to that, to where you can go to the corner, literally at the corner sometimes, where the sacred prostitute and the priest are waiting for you. You pay her your money. You have sex with her. You go back and say, crops are going to be great this year. Uh, it's a, it's a, that's a very simplistic way of explaining it. But that was essentially it. <coughs> Hosea's wife, Gomer, I think was one of those sacred prostitutes. I think that was her role. Somehow, I don't know how, they fall in love. She leaves that lifestyle. They have three kids. He's still madly in love. He's hard to live with, though, because he preaches all this stuff. I mean, imagine what it's life like living with a fire and brimstone preacher. She leaves him. It looks like she goes back to her old lifestyle. Hosea still loves her. What he's hoping God will do to Israel, he doesn't want to do to his wife. Even though he feels like Israel is, is being unfaithful, adulterous toward God, and therefore they should be punished, he's madly in love with his wife. And he doesn't want her to go away. His theology is completely transformed to the point where he sees things now from the angle of heaven. And he writes this beautiful text. Ephraim is another name for Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? Early, earlier, by the way, in Hosea 11, he says, I, I led you out of Egypt like a child. I took your hand like a child, and I led you out of Egypt. How can I hand you over? How can I make you like uh, Adma? How can I treat you like Zeb Zeb Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's uh, one of the most beautiful texts of forgiveness you'll encounter anywhere, anywhere, period. Any religion, any Hallmark store, anywhere. It's an amazingly powerful thing. Uh, you are my child, and I, I will care for you. It refers, it refers to another, it's another name for Israel. It refers to one of the sons of, I'm going blank on him. I'll give that to you afterwards. Yeah. Um, what, what, what Hosea wants him to understand is that God loves them no matter what. If you want an example of, of universal love and salvation being spoken, it's right there. We don't even got the Jesus yet. It's right there in Hosea 11 of God's universal, undying, ongoing, continual love and forgiveness for us. What it's saying is, oh, here's what I wanted to tell you. Maybe this will help illustrate the point. The very first funeral I did was for a 35-year-old man who was found dead in a, a hotel room. No one knows for sure what happened. The rumor I heard was that he died of drugs. No one knows for sure what happened. I went to his parents' house. They were not active members of the church, but you know, we, Jim, we talked about this in, in, in staffing today. If somebody's only been to our church once and they call us and say, hey, I went to your church once and I need a pastor, will you come? Jim Long would be the first guy to run out the door and get in his car and go. Of course we go. I, I knew her by name. I knew her well enough, though. Went to her house, sat down. She offered me some cake and some coffee. We talked about the service. I mean, I'm 23. I haven't gone to seminary yet. I'm 24 years old. I'm the youth director. <laughs> And she looks at me over the cake and she says, 
if my baby's going to hell, then I'll stop believing in God right now if that means I get to go to hell and find my baby. I've heard something like that probably half a dozen times in my life. That's Hosea 11. God loves us so much. Even when we've done something terribly stupid, it hasn't ended God's love for us. How could I hand you over? How could I give you up? You are my child, my beloved. All right. Um, we're going to get back into a little, a little bit of a, a turn or burn kind of stuff here, although not exactly. Uh, let's, is the map next? Is that what's next? I think the map is next, Stuart. It's going to come up on the, there you go. All right. Now let me see. Oh, not that one. There was, one, there was another one that I sent to Michael earlier today that, that you had up a minute ago. Um, we should, that's the only one you got? All right. Um, I'll, I'll ignore the names that are on there because this is from another time that I'm talking about. But, but Hosea chapter, or, I mean, I'm sorry, Amos chapter, uh, uh, where the heck am I? Yeah, Amos chapter 1. <clears throat> Amos opens his sermon. And it's really a sermon because that's what prophets do is, they, is they, they're, really, they're really preachers. He, he names, he goes around basically geographically over here on the left-hand side. Can you read that at all back there, y'all, where it says Ashkelon? You see, or you see where it says Gaza? You see Gaza over here on the left side over by the Mediterranean Sea down towards Egypt? Hey, there's a little red pointer. There's Gaza up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more. Right down and right in the, down a little bit. That's Gaza. Okay. What? <laughs> What, what he does is he goes around to all these city-states that surround Israel. Amos does. And then again, he's writing around the same time as Isaiah. He goes to all these different city-states. He says, the, for Gaza and their sins, I will punish them. Now, if you're sitting in the crowd and you hear this, you're kind of like, yeah, we can't stand those people. And then he goes to Amon. He says, the Ammonites and their sins, I'm going to punish them. And then he goes up to Tyre, and Tyre would be up the, the, up the coast, up all the way up there on the top of the map. You can kind of read the words there where it says Tyre, right below Sidon. He goes up to Tyre and he says, oh, those people from Tyre, I'm going to, they're going to burn because of all the terrible things they've done. And it's just, it's a beautiful sermon in a way because he just goes to all these different, these different city-states that surround Israel. These are the enemies at various times of Israel. These are people that they're always nervous about. They're going to invade them or, or take their, their, their property, their land, their women, all, their, all that stuff. So the crowd's riled up. They're totally into the sermon. And then <clears throat> he says, thus for the transgressions of Israel, that's sinned, for the, son of, for the sins of Israel, I will also trample them. Now, do you see what he's done? He's named all the sin. His, uh, who, can I, who can I pick on? Um, uh, Buck, I'll pick on you. Uh, um, he, he, he's gone around and he's named all the sins of all the people in this little section right here surrounding Buck. And Buck's kind of going, okay, good. I don't like you those people either. And then he says, and for yours too. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, 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 a um, rhetorically brilliant piece of preaching in order to get, to get all these people named that, are, are, that they cannot stand, and boy, they're going to get this, and they're going to get, Paul does something like this in the book of Romans, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get it, and so are you. Now, here's what Amos is upset about. In Amos' time, um, I'll borrow this mic stand. In Amos' time, 
what would happen is a farmer would create some kind of a, uh, usually use stones, sometimes wood, but would create um, his own marker. And he'd put, a, he'd put a marker at one spot, and then he'd take something that, that looked exactly like that marker, three stones stacked up or whatever, or, or a microphone stand, and he'd set that down uh, on his property. And he'd put another one on each corner of his property, and let's pretend like this is 100 acres. Those markers would mark his property, and it would be clear. This is, this is um, give, me a, give me a Hebrew name, give me a, a, a Jewish name. This is... Um, David. This is David. This is, this is King David. Not King David. This is David. Um, not King David. David. Um, and and this, is his, this is his 100 acres. And he, he can make enough to feed his family and have stuff to take into the, um, uh, to the village to trade with and so forth. And, and he's doing fine. Um, now there's another, there's another uh, farmer. Uh, his name is Moses. And, and not the Moses, but another Moses. And he owns... 10,000 acres, and he's like the most powerful guy in the whole village. He's got all this land and all this stuff. He comes over, and he knocks over the poor guys, the smaller guys, markers. He knocks those over, and then he incorporates that 100 acres into his 10,000 acres and puts up his own markers. And so, so what do the two farmers do? The poor farmer goes to the judge at the corner, right, and says, um, I have 100 acres. Uh, this man has stolen my 100 acres. He's come, and he's, he's put his own markers up. It's a ruse. It's fake. It's not real. I, I can't believe this happens. And what does the judge say? Yeah, the judge has already been paid off. Is it, I mean, is, have we heard this kind of a story before? That's what was happening in Amos' day. Basically, the wealthiest of the wealthy were taken away from the poorest of the poor. Sometimes it was plots as small as 10 acres. Amos is seeing this. And Amos, and Amos is saying, this is not the way you can live. And that's how he starts his sermon off. He goes all the way around. And he, tells, he talks about all these different sins, all these other countries or city-states around Israel. And then he nails them for the way they're treating the poor and how they're forgetting to care for the hungry in their midst and how the rich are getting richer and richer and richer and more powerful and they don't care about anybody else. And it just infuriates him. Absolutely inferior. Amos never gets happy. There, there's no, oh, Israel, I let him out like my child by my hand. No, none of that in Amos. Amos is like, come on, folks. You got to live the right way, and this is not the way you're called to live. I mean, here's, he, he starts another sermon off. Chapter 4. Put chapter 4 up there. I think 4 is next. <laughs> or somewhere. Chapter 4. <clears throat> This is how he opens his sermon. You fat cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, something to drink. Um, I don't think he got a raise after this sermon. <laughs> but do you see what he's saying? You're sitting around, and, and, and by saying fat cow, he's not talking about their physical stature. What's he talking about? Their wealth. You're stealing from folks. You're stealing from, from people who have nothing. You crush the needy. And then you sit back on your couch and say, bring me another glass of wine. Bring me some more grapes. You see the image he's trying to draw of these people who have everything. Comfort and all that they could ever want. And they just keep going for more and more and more and more. Um, it's... it's it, you can see the influence of Amos and Jesus and his teachings 
You can see the influence of Hosea on Jesus and his teachings. Who does, who does Jesus go after the hardest? The people in power. Not the Romans so much. He kind of almost ignores them. But the people within Israel who are in power, who are doing whatever they can politically to hold on to their power to get more. That's the religious people, the super uber religious people who are constantly fighting to get more and more power. That's what Jesus goes after. He's sort of a, 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 a follower of, of Amos. All right, so you got that point. Now, Micah 6. Uh, one of my friends from uh, Bible college reminded me that we had a professor in, in Old Testament who said that the entire Bible can be summed up in Micah 6.8. It's a bit of an uh, exaggeration, but it's not a bad one. Micah 6. Um, Micah 6 will be the next slide to throw up there, Stuart, when you find it. Well, what does the Lord require? Do you remember? Do justice, love kindness. Walk humbly with the Lord. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. <clears throat> that isn't a bad summary of the Bible. It's not a bad summary of, of what the prophets were constantly railing against. Is this justice up here with stealing the, the land? Absolutely not. You can't have shalom if this man's family is starving while that man who has 10,000 and 100 acres is just getting richer and richer and more, um, more powerful. All right, we've got five minutes left for a um, uh, little, little Q&A. Is this one on? I hope it is. There we go. Thank you. If I could have a runner for um, questions, that would help me a lot. Michael, thank you, sir. If you've got a question, uh, we'll bring the mic around and let you, let you ask it. Anything you want to... Um, Get it to be, I know we went fast and went through a ton of stuff. Back in the back, please. How did the writers of these books get the authority to write them and have people believe them? Yeah, that's really good. Um, Jeremiah, for example, came from a priestly family, and so there was some built-in authority there. Um, that's where his authority would have come from. Um, but it was still just as dangerous um, because if you're the king and you don't like what the prophet's saying, what do you do to the prophet? You just kill him. You just kill him and get him out of the way or throw him in jail or do whatever you've got to do. Some of the, some of the prophets, so like Amos, it's not as clear. Amos, some people think, was a farmer from the south who went to the north to preach um, and that he just basically got his authority from his own personal experience of life and paying attention to the, to the law and to, uh, Genesis, to the Torah and to Deuteronomy and to Leviticus, which more or less would have been existence, existed in some form or fashion at that point. And so it was his own life experience that gave him the authority. Um, and they would rise up in that way. So it's kind of both and, both places, yeah. And in fact, that, that rem that's, one of, that's a really good question too because a, a, a broader question about authority uh, examines how we, I mean, asks how we look at the Bible. When we say biblical authority, what do we mean by that? What, 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 what's the authority for Scripture? Do we, is it something that it already has? Do we infuse it with that? Um, do we take it away? Um, I, I've been told that, that my approach like this um, is taking away the authority of the Bible. I actually think it, it undergirds it more, but um, that is a conversation that, that we have uh, often in scholarly land. I, there you go, another question right here. I guess particularly with much of the Old Testament, 
at the time, how were, were they written as letters to somebody, sermons, <laughs> for publication on, I mean, you know, how were they disseminated? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, notice, for example, uh, Elijah and Elisha, who are two of the prophets from earlier in Israel's time, we have almost nothing of theirs. Most likely, all of this took place orally. And it was only either after the fact um, that someone wrote something down or someone even much, e either within the content, like, like Glenn talks tonight, and then somebody, a bunch of people get together and say, what did he say about this? And what did he say about that? And you all write it down. That might have been one way. Another way would have been hundreds of years later, just the oral repetition of the, of the preaching or the stories or whatever, whatever it was, and then it gets written down. The book of Job, for example, it's not a prophet book, but a prophetic book, but still works for this question, uh, was probably for hundreds of years, uh, maybe a thousand years, an oral um, tradition handed down over, over years. In fact, scholars can even look at the story and the way it goes and, and show you why it's, it was originally um, uh, oral in its presentation rather than written down. Um, so then what happens is they, they, they began to gather scrolls and start remembering what folks had said and they would gather those scrolls. And like I said, in antiquity, it wasn't considered um, unethical to take on the name of somebody else who was well famous, who, who was very famous and well known, and then use his name to uh, uh, kind of um, add to your writings. And I think that's what happened in Isaiah, is that there was the Isaiah, and then there was another Isaiah, or maybe a group of Isaiahs who wrote together. So most of the time, though, you're out preaching in the public square. And that's, and that's how you, you got your word out. You, you preached out publicly, and then somebody else wrote it down, usually. Please. Was there significance in Amos, um, the part you put up there, it says, you know, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, you say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. It sounds like it's from a woman's, you know, perspective, and that's unusual, usually, so. You, it's not a woman speaking. He's, he's speaking about women. And he's essentially, right. he's, he's essentially saying to everyone, you're sitting around getting, getting rich and wealthy and strong and the poor while you're sitting back on your couch and getting wine for your wife. Not, well, when women are spoken of, usually in the, in the Bible, at least especially in the Old Testament, it's derogatory. Um, and it, but Amos isn't necessarily attacking women. He's just attacking that lifestyle. Yeah, it's a good question. Anybody else? One more. Yeah, I was struck with some of the beautiful metaphors, and yet some of the prophets were uneducated people, so there had to have been some editing along the way. Um, it's, it's hard to say how uneducated they were. Isaiah and Jeremiah probably would have been very well educated. Jeremiah, for sure, because he was in a, a family of, of, of priests, so he would have been educated. Um, Amos, the, um, one of the theories on Amos, for example, is that Amos really was a, a very wealthy person who lived an ethical life. And, and if you were wealthy in antiquity, you probably were very uh, educated. 10% at most could read and write in antiquity. I mean, that's just like a, a pretty well-known fact. But probably Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, um, uh, I'd have to go back and look at Hosea more carefully to know for sure, but they would be in the educated class, yeah, mostly. Anything else? All right, why don't you stand up and let's have a prayer. Thank you, Michael. Oh, wait, one more thing. Um, nope, never mind. Let's pray. 
God, it's evening now in Columbus. The sun has set and we trust that the sun will rise again as it has every day from eons gone by. We trust that in the same way that the light of your love, the bright shining goodness of your mercy and your grace will illuminate our dark world and give us hope for tomorrow that truly someday the peace you promise will come. Amen.